0: The Young Money Podcast, where Teddy Young Rice interviews young entrepreneurs, hustlers, and innovators to get a first-hand view into the exciting
1: future and the people who will lead us there. Hey, Teddy. Hey, Anthony. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good, good. It's, it's been a while. Where, uh, where are you these days?
0: Austin, Texas.
1: Nice. You, uh, you officially moved there, or just there uh, visiting? <laughs> I did. Yeah, I moved here
0: in uh, January.
1: How are you doing? Where are you? Good, good. Yeah, I'm in. uh, I'm in New York. Moved here uh, like a month ago. So. Oh really? That's cool. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Definitely was wanted to move here for a while, and then you know I thought with COVID and everything, like would be a good good time to do so. Um, Yeah. How's it been? How long have you been there? How long have I been here? Is it a month or so? Yeah, like, like a month. But my dad's from here. I've I've like grown up coming here. The second house here, second place here. So. Cool. Yeah, uh, it is interesting to see the the exodus from the Bay Area.
0: Let's see what happens. I, I still think there's a lot of value to the Bay Area for sure. Uh, for sure I, yeah, you know, I think it'll probably ebb and flow for a while, but um, yeah, definitely this was the biggest chink in its armor. Yeah, possibly.
1: yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Um, awesome, man. Well, yeah, thanks again for for being on this. It's pretty mm-hmm. laid back. I just thought that'd be a cool opportunity to just like make a platform interview my friends like there was a gap there and it's also a cool way to kind of catch up with people and learn cool stuff um but yeah i guess just to kind of like start off uh we have been starting this just quick background on yourself anthony and i guess like maybe just like how you got into startups and you know that, that journey at a high level and what you're doing now
0: cool yeah. So uh, yeah, I grew up abroad. I went to Stanford. Uh, I, I never expected I'd ever build a company until I you know, went to Stanford. In fact, like if you'd bet me even a couple of months before I started this business, that I would started a company, I would have taken the other side of that bet with everything I had. So uh, it, it was sort of a circuitous route. It wasn't one in which I sort of came in with a point of view on what I wanted to do. Um, but uh, I'll tell you a little bit about it. So when I was at Stanford, I got to know Joe Longsdale. I sat through a dinner with him. Uh, and I thought he was incredibly intelligent. I thought he was just really dynamic. He had a wide range of interests and points of view that I hadn't heard before. So like um, coming out of that dinner, I remember I wanted to walk myself in my freshman dorm and read for you know, a week. Uh, but I resolved instead, because probably I was lazy, to email him and tell him, hey, look, I thought that was awesome. Is there some opportunity within one of your organizations for me to continue to learn from you? And uh, that resulted in me interning at his venture fund uh, the summer of my sophomore year, uh, which was then called Formation 8. Um, so I had a you know pretty interesting internship. Got to sit through investment committee meetings, and that was probably the beginning of my exposure to tech.
1: Mm-hmm. I'd also had
0: some friends who were investing in uh, te- technology companies, so they were doing a lot of seed deals, and a lot of friends who had started companies themselves. So I had a lot of exposure to that scene. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I think I, I'd always been pretty ambitious. Uh, when I was a kid, I grew up reading a lot of history books, so I tended to think that the way to have impactful life was to become a lawyer and um, you know contribute to society you know through politics. But I quickly appreciated um, that the real opportunity in the year 2012, which is when I started Stanford, was in building technology and, and continuing that whole uh, secular trend around society adopting it. And so after my internship with Joe, uh, he hired me to be a student staff. It was my third year of college. So, um, you know, he, he asked me to drop out. I was like 100% down. I called my parents, they were like, no way. So I ended up uh, being in the office three days a week and on email 24 seven. And I and then junior year is my last year of college. So I graduated early. And then worked for for another year through uh, the creation of a firm called ABC, which is what he's building now. And um, yeah, so when we were at ABC, you know, Joe had a lot of ideas around new companies, opportunities. You know, His whole framework can be summarized as, or at least at the time, uh, summarized as, you know, the economy is much larger than people appreciate. Silicon Valley is a fairly narrow focus, yeah. um, huge opportunities in the real world that, that nobody's focused on uh, that, you know, have the potential to generate multi-billion dollar platforms and, and build, you know, game-changing businesses. And so with that lens, we started evaluating the home improvement market in 2016. Uh, and, you know, there was also a lot of um, value being created around online lending. So basically, uh, financial services coming unbundled the new distribution platforms for credit products, et cetera. Uh, and they tended to be really focused on credit card refinancing. So if you look at Credit Karma, Lending Tree, Lending Club, you know 85 to 90 percent of the volume of these businesses is really in helping people who have credit card balances pay off those credit card balances and personal loans. But on an offline basis, there was basically an equally large amount of demand in home improvement, but nobody had figured out a digital channel um, for you know these lenders to access the home improvement market. And so that was the opportunity that really started to get me excited. And, um, like I said, I never saw saw myself starting a business, but, uh, the more I thought about it, the more I realized this is one of these platforms that would necessarily exist in 10 years, but hadn't been built yet. Uh, and at the time I, I sort of had some ideas around how we could do that quickly, uh, they were all wrong, of course, but they taught me a lot on the journey there. So I started the business in September of 2016. Uh, so we've been doing about four, four and a half years
1: or so. Nice. Great, great overview. And, and and like, yeah, I remember the early days when I, when we first met and you were trying to explain to me what Shogun, I guess now Hearth, was doing. I was still confused. But it's funny how how ahead of the time you guys were, you and Joe, thinking through these things like, I mean, home improvement, freelancers, uh, embedded finance. It seems like you guys were like on top of it before anyone was, was, was even thinking about that.
0: Well, I look, I obviously there was a lot of work that went into building these platforms, but definitely now I think everybody's going to understand that fundamentally what's going on is that 20 years ago, all the financial service providers were full stack providers. It's like, you wanted to go get a loan. You get it from J.B. Morgan. uh, You you go to their branch, uh, their branch would have loans that were funded from, you know, depositors. Now it's like, uh, you know, Soros is backing a lending club underwriting system that's plugged into Credit Karma, which is getting you whatever loan you want. Uh, so that system has now come apart and the opportunity is to, you know, put it back together in interesting and new ways. Um, and, and that's really what we're focused on with Hearth. And you're right, like at the beginning of Hearth, we, you know, we thought of ourselves as a vertical financial service distribution business. Yeah. And we thought we were starting with home improvement, which, you know, potentially we will go into new verticals, build out the financial toolkits. Yeah. Because uh, they're generalizable fundamentally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I think at this point, one of the reasons we sort of came out of stealth is hard is because we feel like the real opportunity, at least for the next five years is in home improvement, and yeah. that's where we're going to be focused uh, in terms of what we're building.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Definitely want to dive into that in a second. And like I guess like the point you made before about, especially in Silicon Valley, a lot of people don't overlook kind of the rest of the economy and just like all these markets that are underserved and like just you put a little bit of tech there or you improve one process here. Um, it could be huge. How did you guys start thinking that way? Um, and do you think that you think that more people are starting to like understand that, or you still think that there's a lot of opportunity there?
0: Uh, no, I, I don't think more, more people are trying to understand it. I think I frankly took it from Joe. I think Joe learned it from commenter Yeah. Uh, where they what they were doing is going to massive government systems. Yeah. And improving them and realizing like, holy crap, I can't believe that you know the CIA works like this. You know, yeah. <laughs> Or something like that, uh, and then you know, same with big finance and big healthcare. And so I think Joe had this point of view from there. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah, you know, he built Adapar as well, which is another area where there wasn't much technology until they no. came around. And yeah. They just did the big round. So.
1: And, and he's backing uh, Palmer and Anduril, right? Which is kind of another example of like government contracts and just horrible technology. I mean, that yeah, that's super cool. Um, yeah. And I guess, like, what was that journey like? you said you, you weren't going to drop out, you know, that was a like kind of a big change, but like, how did you come to decide to do that? I mean, a lot of people might be like, Hey, like, especially at Stanford, I want to stay one more year. I don't know if like, you know, Joe seems like a smart guy and I like working with him, but I don't know if I want to just dive in. What made you decide to do that?
0: Oh, well, first of all, I didn't really doubt whether I wanted to work for Joe just that I thought was so cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I'd never met anybody like him. And so, especially being 19 or 18 and, you know, yeah. here it was like maybe 29 or 30 at the time you built these massive businesses and he had literally, he's like a fountain of ideas. Yeah, And um, and so I, I didn't really doubt that. And I probably undervalued the experience at Stanford in terms of how unique it was and how um, irreplicable it would be in my life, the rest of my life. And so uh, I didn't really weigh that very heavily in my decision. You know, I was pretty eager to get out and get started.
1: Yeah, yeah. I definitely can relate with that. It's good, good to be in, in school, but I feel like you learn more by doing. And like, there's a lot of opportunity, especially when you're young, to just go and do it. Um, especially here, because I mean, what people yeah. don't appreciate about the
0: Stanford or really Silicon Valley tech ecosystem is it's yeah. it's not ageist. Yeah, and that seems like such a natural thing to say, but the rest of the world is super ageist. Like you yeah. don't even yeah. realize how ageist the rest of the world is. Yeah, so the fact that you can be 20 years old and you know have a company and you know get investors and hire executives is. You know literally heresy in Europe for example yeah. or, uh, you know now it's starting to change but even a couple of years ago that was true
1: yeah and, and do you think it's starting to change? I think that the I think everybody
0: under, like you know, I think everybody understands that technology is incredibly important that it's one of the most dynamic forces in society uh, and I think that most of the Western European countries are trying to invest more aggressively and trying to replicate what's happened in the US over the last um, you know 20 or 30 years
1: yeah so, yeah I
0: think it's it's starting to change. I'm not sure how much it will change or any of that, but it's certainly starting to change.
1: yeah I mean I have a, I have a theory that I feel like that uh, with inflation and just uh, like the competitive marketplace, now people and, and organizations want higher returns and while startups are risky the returns can be really high. and so I feel like there's this, now there's like this demand from family offices, you know hedge funds to start getting into startups. And that's kind of fueling the rise of more and more VCs, which are now funding more and more companies. And there is room for improvement in technology everywhere, like, like you were saying before. I mean, if you could just renovate, you know, the plumbing process in Slovakia, I'm sure that could be like a million dollar, you know, revenue generating business. And so I think there's like there is a lot of like liquidity out there and people are now looking for it. Yeah. Um, basically, the way to think about that
0: is that, uh, you know, everything's about the opportunity cost of money. Yeah. And we have a zero percent interest rate uh, effectively 0%, then everybody yeah. really takes more risk to get return, right? If you could put your money in the bank and earn 10%, I guarantee you that only one third of the startups, uh, that have been funded would be funded. Yeah. So yeah, that's how that works.
1: Yeah. Um, that's super cool. Any, uh, any interesting stories? I mean, obviously like, you know, it's been a couple of years, work on your company, any cool stories or like, uh, inflection points that you guys had that you think you learned a lot of insights that most people maybe don't understand or most people maybe hit and then like, you know, don't solve correctly?
0: I mean, you know, every week you probably come across things that are, you know, net it is like sort of a net new information that you yeah. learn from uh, in this particular game. Uh, your COVID was a, pretty, was a pretty interesting time. I think one of the biggest lessons for me was that we could operate in a remote environment uh, successfully and effectively. Yep. Uh, across departments and that yeah. was uh, that's something i never expected you know i was probably one of these leaders who was like oh you know work from home days etc yeah, yeah, yeah. it sounds it all sounds quite you know fishy to me but uh, <laughs> but i think the reality is that it's totally functional and i was probably wrong about that
1: yeah and so are you guys now going to be like pretty remote flex or hybrid or what are you guys thinking i think it'll be you know so yeah, there's all. I think it'll probably end up being we'll have we'll hire mostly around our
0: hubs, which are San Francisco and Austin. Uh we'll have facilities in those hubs, but we won't have a expectation around, you know, uh desk time, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Um yeah, I think, I think that there is value yeah. and dimensionality to a professional experience that's enhanced yeah. by being in an office. Uh and fundamentally, I think trust is more easily built. Like yeah. I think that if yeah, personally. And maybe yeah. I, there are practices that aren't available to me or that I haven't come across yet. Yeah. But um, so I want to, you know, enable that in certain ways, but I don't think that you can hire the best people by telling them, hey, my expectation is going to sit at a desk for, you know, 10 to 12 hours a day, yeah. five days a week at yeah. the time I say you should. Yeah. I think those days are probably gone.
1: Yeah. No, that's a good point. But but I do agree with you. though. I think I do think it's a balance. I mean, I feel like a lot of creativity and like, honestly, like efficiency kind of comes from in person, especially for like strategy. I feel like it's engineering and like the, the tasks laid out, you can kind of crank on that on your own. But in terms of like a lot of cross like collaboration, I feel like that needs to be in person. Um, you can solve
0: problems faster in person. Sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. But, it, but yeah, it's and that's like, but then it's like the efficiency of like, you know, uh, meeting together, being online at home is, it, it, it'll, it'll be cool to see how like things kind of like, shake out in the end but yeah i i definitely agree that we're, it's it's like a new world which is pretty crazy to think um like what covid did um yeah and how have you liked austin i've heard like a, I've never, i never haven't been yet i've heard a lot of like hype about it uh how's the how's like how's it how do you like living there working there
0: it's super cool i, I honestly i'm pretty impressed with it um yeah i spent a little bit of time in miami too to check it out uh, yeah. not that i was concerned moving there but just you know in q1 i could probably visit a couple of friends there for maybe a month. Yeah. Four. So uh, I got a taste of what the alternatives look like. And Austin is pretty low key, it's pretty relaxed in the same way that San Francisco, it's fairly unpretentious, yeah. Uh, you know, and I like that, I think versus somewhere like Miami or LA, where I think that there's a little bit more of that going on. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think it's a, it's a fantastic place to focus. There's a lot of nature to access. So like, yeah. I, you know, I live right by a lake, you can run on the lake in the morning, it's a beautiful experience, there's tons of people out there. You almost feel like everybody here is between the age of eighteen and forty. there's so many young people uh, every you know on all the streets every single night of the week the restaurants are very vibrant um, there's and they have there's a lot wide range of restaurants Obviously it's really hard to get a reservation because everybody's moving here now
1: yeah, yeah. so yeah there's
0: honestly Austin has a ton to offer. I think it's a fantastic place to focus and build a company yeah um, certainly for me
1: nice. Um, and, and have you also been, I know you do like angel investing and stuff on the side. I don't know if you're doing that more. Are you also seeing from that lens, like the startup scene in Austin, you know, look attractive? Um,
0: uh, I'll, I'll give it, I'll probably say no comments. Okay. I don't offend anyone. But like, you know, I do think, you know, I'll be honest, most of the angel investing I've done is being the Stanford network. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I think most of the success I've seen in that particular demand has been from the Stanford network. Yeah. So there's probably amazing seed early networks um, that I'm just not plugged into.
1: Yeah, makes sense. Uh, definitely want to touch on this. I remember a while ago you were telling like Clay and me this, and I thought it was a pretty, really, pretty good story. That in the early days, you guys had a different pricing model. Um, I think you were doing free, or and you correct me if I'm wrong, but you realized that that if you charge, that there's actually more value, or or it resonated better.
0: Yeah, definitely. Look, I mean, growing. you know. When you're exp- pricing is a really tough concept yeah, yeah. Uh, to, to master. And I think there's probably really good processes around them um, that that are probably too sophisticated for me or the vast majority of people I've talked to about pricing because yeah. most of the founders I know basically are just guessing. Yeah. And then they, you know, when you're running a pricing test, you're, you're trying to just figure out what you can get away with. Yeah. Um, and, and what makes the most sense for your business. So in our case, um, you know, we played around with pricing a lot. Uh, and I think we're in a pretty good spot. Like even this year at our scale, we just uh, increased the price by 30% uh, oh, so wow. that we could invest more in account management and the product experience and yeah. the product expansion that we're doing. Um, but I'd say like, you know, one of my biggest pieces of feedback to any founder is uh, just keep a super open mind with respect to pricing. Yeah. And then know that, you know, people value free things less than things that they pay for, for sure.
1: People value free things less. Yeah. And and And, and do you think there's an issue where, I've heard of this when you start out with a free product, and then you maybe try to uh, have people pay for it. It does also change the like perception of things versus if you started paid.
0: Yeah, for sure. And uh, I mean, at the end of the day, you have to acquire customers. So unless you have a really yeah. strong
1: referral engine or
0: organic source of uh, acquisition, um, yeah. then yeah. it's for network effect. Then I think you need to have at least some sort of revenue generating function inside of your product, or else you're not yeah. going to be to expand it.
1: Yeah. No, that makes sense. And like, and, and how did you guys even in the early days, like a bunch of Silicon Valley guys, like tech guys even get in contact with, because I, you know, I feel like it's, it's cliche, but it's so true. Like know your customer, keep getting yeah. feedback, have it be recurring, not one-off, you know, know who they are and build that relationship to really understand. Um, how did you guys do that in the early days, given that these were, I see you're working with contractors where your, were your customers, you know, around the, the U S like being in, in Silicon Valley.
0: Well, in the, in the, we used to travel and go visit them and test the product with them and train yeah. them and stuff like that. Once we had a little bit of traction, I mean, all of the early product market fit stuff happened in person. You know, okay. like I sold the first version of our product uh, to a guy named Stephen Mode at American Way Roofing Exterior uh, at a roofing convention in Louisiana. So a lot of that <laughs> happened in person. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, we try to make sure that even as we expand, we have exposure to the customer, yeah. which, is, which is really important and really hard. Yeah, uh, you, yeah. You know, It's so easy to get wrapped up in all these aspects of building companies yeah. that have nothing to do with the customer. Um, but we try to stay disciplined around that, especially in the product team. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I know for our engineering team, uh, there's a long period of time where every week, an engineer would, each engineer would listen to at least one customer success touch point with the customer, nice. uh, especially around a product that they're that they're engaged with. Or, or built yeah, themselves. Exactly. So I, I think that that's, that's, that's important. And yeah, we probably didn't do a good enough job that earlier. I wish I had done that earlier. Like early in the very early days, I used to get in fights with my team because they're like, we need to go talk to customers and understand and empathize. And I was like, you guys, like, this is all stuff like from like the design school. 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 I don't need to talk to anybody.
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah, I I was telling
0: people, like, I don't need to talk to, I don't need to talk to somebody to understand that, like, you know, Americans want loans. Like, it's America. Yeah. 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 Massive industry for loans. There's tens of hundreds, trillions of dollars of credit outstanding. Like, you know, I need to go. Yeah, I understand that. That was the stupidest thing I could have possibly said. And I probably wasted like three or four months. So yeah, I've,
1: yeah, I think it's really important early on. I mean, it's hard to like, yeah, there's so many lessons. I feel like you can't know everything. I mean, I, I feel like people who, you know, the, the quintessential like startup story is like, oh yeah, we figured it out overnight and it works. Like, no, it's not how it works. It's always challenging something like, basically just need to always realize that you can be wrong and just try different things and kind of go from there. That's like
0: one of the key aspects that we that as we scale, I'm trying to ensure you know is true in across yeah. the entire business, which is basically a problem solving framework yeah. where you identify a specific problem, you ensure that that problem has a measurement associated with it. So some number, metric, whatever that you're tracking to see, you know, the state of the problem. Yeah. And then you yeah. literally just stack rank the tests and experiments. You want to run against that problem to see if you can move the needle yeah. uh, on the metric. And like 90% of what I do in terms of Uh, operating the business is ensure that that framework has integrity across all departments.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How has your role kind of like, you know, typical question, how has your role changed from like early days to now? Uh, Well, I think that since
0: we raised our series B, it's been much more focused on hiring and recruiting. So I probably end up spending like now 40 or 50% of my time trying to find the best people to work with and and then convince them to work with us. Um, So that's, you know, that's probably new just because we're, we're expanding pretty aggressively. And then I think that over time, um, having a clear strategy and vision for the business becomes more important as it scales, yeah, because uh, you know people don't all have the benefit of having sat in a you know tiny room with you for years, you know building this thing out and listening to you every day, so yeah. having something where it's like you know your hundred and sixtieth employee understands what yeah. the business is about yeah uh, in a, system- a systematic way is is becomes more important,
1: yeah. Yeah. And and how was, uh yeah, congrats on the B. Uh, how was, how was fundraising during COVID?
0: Well, funnily enough, we were actually going to do the B and we had a great 2019. Yeah. Uh, and so we, from a business perspective, and um, we we were going to raise a Series B in March of 2020. So I started the process in early March and then I'd set up, you know, a bunch of conversations. I had a bunch of, um, you know, partner meetings lined up. And then, of course, the second half of March, COVID comes, financial markets collapse. And what's interesting is we had had the opportunity to raise money uh, earlier yeah. in the year. And, uh, you know, in a board meeting, I was talking to Joe and Joe's like, Anthony, take it. And I was like, why? I don't want to take it. I think it's too low. Like, maybe a better deal. He's like, and yeah. you don't understand. That, you know, something's going to happen and the market is going to crash and you won't be able to find it if you want it. And you have never seen this before. But yeah. when the money goes, it goes. It's dry. There's no, you, know, you can't get it, no matter who you are, how yeah. good you think your relationships are, your story, whatever your growth. Yeah. Um, and he ended up, I think he ended up being right for the wrong reason, sort of like when you do a math problem, you get the right answer, but you've done the problem wrong. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and so here I was like in March, we had six months of burn, Uh, you know, we had no idea what the hell COVID was gonna hold for our business. Yeah. And um, we'd been sort of expanding and investing because we expected that we'd be, you know, we go 5X in 2019, we we're expecting that we'd get the Series B done. Yeah. And so uh that was a unexpected uh, set of outcomes. Yeah. But we ended up taking a bridge round and then we had to sort of readjust our workforce. uh which is really challenging. You know, I think letting go of people in that environment was tough. But uh we had a really, really strong 2020 as well because you know, COVID was great for our improvement.
1: Yeah. No, I mean I feel like that that experience like what like shitty, but like going through something like that and coming out like, you know definitely made you probably stronger as a leader, uh, stronger as a company. Um, yeah. And 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 I think like no one really knew what would it was it was crazy with COVID because everyone's predicting these trends. No one really knew what COVID was, but also how people would react to different things. Like, you know, examples like R V, like R V sales went up. Like who could have guessed that would have happened? Um and then with yeah, home improvement, you know, at least from what I heard, and I guess you just said it, like more people are at home. I assume that's the rationale. Like they're looking at their house, like, hey, we might as well improve it. Now we're potentially going to be here for a while. So that's like an interesting, like know, trend that would have been very hard to predict, like if the first week of COVID.
0: Also contractors are, were considered essential workers. So they were okay. able to, there you uh, go. Yeah. Yeah. Which was a big, big aspect of it. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, our focus is primarily on external remodels, which was also really helpful yeah. uh, you don't yeah. to have anybody in your house. So yeah, we, we sort of, uh, we made it through that period pretty well. And obviously we're super blessed uh, yeah, yeah, and lucky fundamentally, you know, cause when the, when you have these third standard deviation events, it doesn't matter how it does, actually being smart doesn't matter anymore. It's all about being lucky.
1: And were there ever any points where you're considering like pivoting potentially part of the business or was it just like, cause I know some business completely pivoted. Uh, yeah. I had a couple of conversations about
0: potentially selling the business when we had six months of runway okay. and uh, you know, it was sec- and all our, and literally partners would call me and be like, and we think your business is great. Yeah, uh, but you know, there's too much macro uncertainty. Yeah, You don't know what's gonna happen, and so yeah, uh, you know, it's not even worth doing a partner meeting. I was like, oh wow, that's a change.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a change of tune. Yeah, uh, thanks, so, yeah. man. I, I thought we were getting beer, you know, a month ago. Like,
0: <laughs> uh, you know, because before they when they're trying to bait you into these partner meetings, like we're
1: so excited, like yeah, we have yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And then uh, yeah, then that stuff changes very fast. It's good to know because uh, you know, lots of crazy stuff happens.
1: Yeah. And I feel like one, one huge duty of, you know, of yours uh, being CEO, and being co-founder of a business is fundraising. I'm sure you could talk for forever about that, but any, any insights you gained on that, like that process that, and maybe even like the venture capital market today, because they're kind of linked to like, like what you learned and maybe how you would approach it.
0: Uh, Yeah. I think people really care about, especially early startups tend to spend more time on about, you know, thinking about the initial implementation of their product and strategy and less time thinking about the ultimate consequences in a decade of their business. Yeah. And I actually think that, uh, you know, I've had a lot of friends to our companies and I've helped them advise them and putting together their seed rounds. Um, and uh, I think investors care a lot more about the latter than the former. And that's pretty much true. I think until you're like C, you're a series C. You know, obviously, when you have A and B, you have metrics, and your metrics to demonstrate that you're you're confident in the business, that you're capturing a meaningful opportunity. But ultimately, what people want to invest in is game changing technologies that have you know the appetite for an entire industry. Yeah, Uh, Yeah. and and I think getting that part of the narrative right early on is only helpful. And I've seen founders who are amazing at it. Like I've certain founders who are incredible at it. The other thing is being really intentional about the process. Uh, The more reactive you are in the process, the less leverage you have in the process. So I think you know setting the terms and the dynamics is, has a huge effect on the outcome. Yeah, you know, like I always think like substance and form. Like you know, substance is a necessary but not sufficient condition to getting a round done.
1: Yeah, you also need
0: to have the form,
1: right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely true from my experience. From what I've seen from other people too. Yeah, so it's kind of like early days. Long, it's like vision, long term thinking, and, and based on the economics of like a fund you need to be 10X, you need to be a billion dollar company, or at least have a chance at it.
0: 100%, yeah. right, because like these investors make so much money from, uh, like, you know, it's crazy because I never had a huge personal uh, seed check that like became like a, you know, a massive company. So I hadn't really seen it for myself until fairly recently. Yeah. Where I, where I had a company that I, I was, a you know, very early check in their first round. And uh, then, the, you know, that did very, very well since. And I, that's when I like it really clicked for me that the economics for these guys is really like they need one person to have a hundred X. Yeah. And that takes care of them for the rest of their life. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. You know what I
0: mean? So you want to be that option for them.
1: Yeah. And it's like you'd have to. Yeah. If you don't think about that, I mean, it makes you know, you could, you could write it down. The math works out. But if you don't think about it, it's like not intuitive to think that like you just need one big winner, you know, like and everything else. Yeah. Checks out. But. Yeah, and what was that company or if you can if you can say that you, you invested in they haven't yet uh,
0: they haven't yet sort of uh, publicly shared the results okay, I okay. say, yeah.
1: yeah no problem um, it's, not, it's, it's an
0: awesome company and great people
1: yeah yeah yeah. Um, yeah I mean do you think do you think the investing markets change like so I like a couple of theories like investing markets changing because VCS on one end on one end businesses don't need as much capital as they used to, so like pre-seed a seed can kind of get you pretty far, and you can now raise from like equity crowdfunding. You can now do friends and family. You can now get celebrities for distribution. Um, you know, imagine getting somebody in like a certain industry for for your company. It's not a VC, but like literally will be you know strategic and give you all the the marketing and brand awareness. Um, and then also on the other on the other end of that, like now you have like Tiger Global and these big hedge funds getting in who can give capital like that so there's basically no process and kind of like it's squeezing vcs do you think that and then another another thing too which i think is pretty like fascinating in my opinion is like um liquidity potentially might change with like carta x and the ability to like have a private market for for equity share um of like startups right
0: forget, forget about that i mean carta X is probably really relevant paradigm shift sure, but the, the real thing that limited founder liquidity, early investment, liquidity, early employee liquidity was a culture against secondary. Yeah. And that's completely gone. Yeah. Like it used to be, even when I started in VC, it was like yeah. you know, this unknowable thing, like it's heretical to take money off the table if you're an early employer yeah. founder until the company goes public. Uh, and all those pretensions have evaporated entirely. So uh, what, what,
1: the other thing what, is why do, why do you think that is? Uh, because you
0: have the one growth, you have the golden goose, the global economy, if you have a growing technology company. Yeah. You know, so this, and I think 2020 accelerated all of that. So people are only smarter to that in fact. And so uh, if you have a really exciting business that has high margins growth and then tons of potential that you've executed on successfully, then like you are the, you're really in the driver's seat as far as mm-hmm. what the terms are. Um, yeah. And even though businesses need less capital, you know, entrepreneurs, you know, have no shortage of ideas for how to deploy capital. So, and then there's also this competitive dynamic amongst entrepreneurs where it's like, even if you don't need money, you know, your friend, you know, raise yeah. it, listen. So you kind of feeling now, uh, you know, less accomplished. And so th- there's all sorts of dynamics like that that drive this market. It's pretty
1: fascinating. Yeah, yeah, uh, those are good points. Um, yeah, one other question around like the product, I mean, when in the early days when you guys were, were trying to get feedback, there wasn't really something similar out there i mean there was like lending but there wasn't something like specialized like this and that was also had like a you know better technology how was it because i feel like there's different approaches with startups obviously zero to one is like you know the, the ideal they say but like there's also um argument for building something similar that's just better um and so you can actually just take advantage of like existing like you don't need to worry about you know customer acquisition, there's processes that you can copy from other companies, but then you have some other piece that's, that's new. And that's what kind of drives it forward. How did you guys like, uh, how are you able like to sell and like really get feedback when your product seemed like it was a new thing?
0: Well, so basically the the core invention, if you will, yeah. it, that term that led to our early growth was that we enabled small business contractors to offer financing when they couldn't before. Yeah. So contractors could offer financing before us because there's this large companies like Green Sky, Wells Fargo, Synchrony. But the way that those companies work with contractors is they front the money to the contractor. So they had underwriting criteria for the contractor. They had to have a million dollars of revenue at least. You had that three years in business, audit financial statements, all sorts of stuff, which the vast majority of SMB contractors don't have. Hmm. So 83% of contractors are four people or less, right? So the market was smart to the advantage from a point of sale perspective of offering financing, but they just never had a product
1: that could work with them. Why, and, and why were those terms so like stringent? I mean, was it b- because of like risk back then? Like basically did risk tolerance get better now or was like there now more data to support giving like loans? I mean, what changed? So our, our solution
0: originates directly to the homeowner. Yeah. So the contractor doesn't actually touch the flow of funds okay. until after the contract signed and then at the homeowner's discretion. Yeah. And so the consequence, we circumvent the process of underwriting the
1: contractor. Interesting.
0: Whereas Interesting. in the case of these large other companies, they're funding the money of the merchant yeah. So, you know, there's some regulation that ties them to that project, first of all, but more yeah. importantly, uh, you know, they need to make sure that whoever they're funding that $8,000 or $10,000 is going to actually get the project done, is going to just go to Guatemala or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And so we, so that's how we got around it. And and look, we stumbled into that. Like we were in a roofing convention in Louisiana after having failed at about, you know, a thousand experiments for the last year and a half Yeah. When we, when we sort of finally landed on this particular model. And then it took off like in the first contractor, in the first year we acquired a thousand contractors and you know, we did like $10 million of loans um, yeah. and we were pumped because, and you know, we didn't necessarily foresee that happening. Funnily enough, uh, so I sent a weekly email which you probably remember or know about. I sent a weekly email uh, to my team every week just with what's going on. And before we went to this roofing convention I wrote a team uh, email being like, hey guys, really excited about this convention. By the way, I just wanna set your expectations. Probably nothing's gonna happen. Probably yeah. we're going to fail at what we're doing, but we'll learn something and we'll keep moving. And that's like sort of the culture of pre market but you got to be yeah, experimenting. Yeah. I was like, literally, I almost, I like literally was working. I was like, it's not like we're going to discover something that's going to unlock this insane growth business <laughs> and we're going to ride for, you know, a couple of yeah, years. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Because, you know, we had tried so many things unsuccessfully that I figured like that was the right way to manage my team. Yeah. And of course, finally, when I learned that lesson is when we actually unlocked something valuable.
1: Nice. So you like, you like, like anti-jinxed yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, but, but 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 that is no. I, like I think that's uh, that's good to hear. You know about setting morale and like realizing that like things take time and it's all about experimenting and like it, a lot of failures. But you know that's the, as long as you're learning each time and like taking something away from that. And actually, and maybe not spending too much time on something that's not working. I think that's like that's the right approach. I think it's it's the hardest.
0: Yeah. The hardest problem I found in building a company is deciding with yeah. to pivot. That is the hardest, that is the hardest problem that I've seen. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's, that's, that's super tough because there's, there's no signal, you know, it's all judgment and you don't know if you're wrong. And so, uh, that, that is really, really a tough one. And yeah, I would say like everything takes way longer than what you expect. The the biggest piece of advice I give all the, you know, start startup founders who are in an earlier stage when they're just kicking things off is like go and figure out all the assumptions embedded in your strategy Yeah, and then make, try to, test them as soon as possible to de-risk, you know, uh, because most of what happens is that you have some assumption embedded yeah. in your strategy that's completely wrong. Like in our case, we were trying to market uh, the loans on top of marketplaces, like Home Advisor engines, et cetera. Yeah. And we were saying, okay, they got tens of millions of users. We'll convert 50 basis points to them and that's gonna be the business
1: model. Yeah. But we actually
0: converted, you know, 50 basis points to 50 basis points. So what we thought we we're gonna have a $10 million business, we had like 5,000 worth of revenue.
1: Hmm. yeah. Interesting, and 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 how did you guys do distribution? I feel like that's another piece because I mean, you guys are technically consumer or B two B to C. Yeah, you know? and uh, yeah, we We have
0: a we have a seventy or eighty person sales team here in Austin. Okay, That's a combination of inbound and outbound sales, and so uh, you can't get on our product without talking to one of our sales reps. Mm-hmm. And so we have a we have a multitude of channels that feed the inbound, and then we have an outbound that's basically we can't send, um contractors all over the country.
1: Yeah. And, and, and but in the early days, were you focusing on scaling? Cause I feel like another, another thing I, I've seen is like before product market fit is getting enough users to test something. And then, and before scaling, cause scaling can take money and time. And it's like, when do you know when you have product? Cause there's a lot of times when you think you have it, but then you, you maybe don't. And then you maybe start prematurely scaling. And then you realize, okay, wait a second. We had some issues here. We have to change that. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, you know, because it's hard because when you're running a company and your revenue starts growing, you can't have it stop growing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, so it's really hard to dedicate the appropriate points of view. And plus, you just don't even know how to do it. Like, this is the big thing for us is at the very beginning, when we had a product and we had customers. We were just running. Every week, we'd launch a new feature. Yeah. You know, so we were like literally huddled up in an office. And every week, we'd just launch new features, new features, new features. And we ended up with this crazy, like you know, Frankenstein product. <laughs> uh, and we went and found Anna Fabian, who used to run products at SoFi. And then she came in and was like, "Okay, guys, nice, yeah, uh, you know, nice work, but like, here's how we're going to do this." And she, and thank, 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 God for that, frankly.
1: Yeah. And then you and you just started looking at data and like seeing what to strip away, or. Yeah,
0: well, we stripped a lot of stuff away. Um, you know, data, like you also have to make a lot of guesses and assumptions. Yeah, you know, uh, and you know. And sometimes you'll be wrong, but hopefully when you're right, you're right. Uh, it's sufficiently significant that uh, people will tolerate you being wrong. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. But but, but was, was it better, you would say, to overbuild and have like a variety of things and then kind of like maximize time by having multiple customers customers test out multiple things and then you can get data on what they liked and what they didn't like. So it's like actually options versus going in like one at a time. Like what would you – I mean, I don't know if there's like a right answer to that, but was there some value in having like – Faster testing with multiple things. If for
0: sure, there's some value in that. But I think that if you're trying to build, yeah, you know, SMB space is really hard, uh, in part because like you know, these contractors aren't particularly used to you know, utilizing technology. Uh, in many cases, they've never offered financing before. So there's a lot that goes into making them feel comfortable introducing yeah. that into the end of their funnel, you know, that like last part of their sales process. Yeah. And so I think being super intentional and um, in developing products you know, uh, from starting with customer interviews, surveying, need finding, then testing, wireframing, then building, I found is like a much more successful and predictable strategy than having an idea and then building it and then testing it.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, No, I definitely will say, uh, once again, like super cool space that you're in. And I mean, SMB space, freelancer space, I mean, I feel like that's, you know, it's growing. Um, um, You know, it's tied to real estate, real estate's always growing. Um, And then that idea of like the loans themselves, like embedded finance, I feel like is a bigger area. You know, you have like loans within embedded finance and then within loans, you have like verticalized loans. And so I guess you guys are a verticalized loan, but then you can also do other verticals and you can do even, yeah. Yeah.
0: It's a verticalized distribution channel for financial services. The cool thing that I didn't predict is the speed at which the rest of the set of financial services would come online in the same way. Yeah. Um, So like in my early uh, decks, I used to have this like set of waves that was like started with, you know, payments being digitized, then yeah. then consumer credit, then consumer yeah. insurance. Then my, like the next wave that I'm super excited about personally is commercial insurance. I think, you know, there's $147 billion spent on commercial insurance distribution in the US. Commercial insurance? Uh, yeah. So like literally buying general liability, workers' compensation products and the distribution mechanisms have been yeah. the same for 50 years. You know, it's clear that that's going to become, you know, a yeah. huge area of opportunity for technology just as the next frontier. But even like, you know, Stripe treasury, like game-changing yeah. product, right?
1: You can yeah, remember, yeah, yeah, I mean, Stripe is no crushing it. I mean, and also this, I mean, similar to you guys, once you get your foothold with one good product and like like a Trojan horse, horse approach and you have a utility and you get customer base, then you can start adding on more and more products that, that supplement them and like go horizontal, or I guess go vertical. Um, and then you can also then get that product itself and then cut, make a clone of it and make it like for a different vertical, go horizontal in that case. Um, but yeah, I mean I feel like Stripe's just been like crushing it because they like, you use them for payments, then you can use them for they use them for an incorporation, then payments, uh taxes now, they're now doing HR. I mean, they're doing like everything.
0: No, I think I think it's gonna be a huge company. I mean, obviously it's already a huge company, but I think yeah, it's yeah, yeah. a lot of potential. Yeah. And uh I think what they've done a really good job at is, you know, most of the people I met from Stripe are really smart. And I think yeah. they've managed to keep that um true for a long time. And if you look at a lot of these great companies like Google, even Poundtier. Yeah. You know, these are the companies that are able to continue to retain top talent. Um, you know, even Coinbase, I think one of the things I've learned from from them is like they just kept a super high uh, standard for all their hires.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, no, that's true. Um, there's like this analogy in the consumer world, which I've heard before, which is like a lot of businesses were just Craigslist, but they like carved out a piece of yeah. list. Is that similar to like kind of the finance stack and it's just being like broken up? Cause, and then, and then you could then get that and make a, you know, vertical, like a specialized solution or general solution. It seems like pretty similar.
0: Yeah, look, I mean, I think that that's, that's what's going on. And I think that the huge financial institutions are are gonna end up being just basically reduced to capital like balance sheets. Yeah. Cause that's like the one thing that you can't really compete with as a startup. Um, And then you know the rest of it, like the distribution mechanisms, the underwriting, the systems, etc., are going to be provided by third parties, and that'll be true across all financial services, whether they be credit, insurance, banking. Yeah. Um, it's going to be pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, it's also cool. I like, can think about with like startups I and mean, people kind of forget like choose a business that makes money, like end of the day. And yeah. I feel I feel like if you choose something that has like a huge market, obviously a huge TAM or whatever, but more more importantly. It's tied to an event that happens frequently. And it's valuable. Money is a great example of that. High, tr- high volume, high frequency. You get like a little piece. You know, you're involved in that. It's that's massive. So I feel like with you know fintech, you know, that's it's good to think of like market first and then kind of go back to see like, okay, is there even like money enough? Is this like kind of worth it? Um,
0: totally. What, one of the frameworks on that just that I found helpful is yeah, like basically yeah, yeah. the closer you are to the stream of funds, the more valuable your business is. Right. That's why you have like you know banks tend to be uh pretty valuable and a bunch of other you know there's there's lots of extrapolations you can make to
1: so closer you are to the source of funds you said just the flow of funds really the flow of funds okay yeah no i definitely agree with that and i guess like it it, it, it can't be an apt conversation about fintech without like crypto (laughs) what are your thoughts what are your thoughts on that uh in general and then maybe even like in terms of like shogun and your business
0: um, well, I think that it's going to be a while until DeFi becomes sufficiently, uh, you know, generalizable. Really, yeah, I think yeah. like DeFi plus, you know, a broad adoption of stable coins would be an interesting plug-in for my product. Yeah, um, and th- that'd be really exciting. And I think it'll happen, but I think it'll take a couple of years. Uh, as a general rule, I think that crypto is going to is a secular change. I think it's going to completely upend most of the core financial systems mm-hmm. um, that undergird like you know, the global order. You know, yeah. So basically, I'm very bullish, I would say. Uh, and I think that, you know, you have these spasms and these market hypes and these hyperbolic trends in price. And I actually think that that's a feature, not a bug.
1: Hmm. Uh,
0: yeah. I think it's an adoption feature. So it's just adoption happening in different waves. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that the price movement usually attracts like, a whole new set of people yeah. and then they can understand the technology. And so what you've seen is that, you know, over the last couple of Years you've had like a massive increase in new addresses. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Crypto, and then I, I, and I, I think that the world is still run by people who are over sixty years old uh, yeah. in committees, and so I think that they really don't get it. Like they have no idea what's going on yeah. as far as it's concerned. They can't tell the difference between Dogecoin and Bitcoin and all this stuff. Yeah, and so I think it's gonna take a while because there's this massive institutional structure that it's rubbing up against. Yeah, but I'm ultimately, sure. I think that it's going to be a foundational part of the future, and I think to the detriment of most of the incumbent institutions.
1: Yeah, no, I I agree with. You. It took me a while to kind of like because there was usually when there's a lot of hype around something and people can't fully explain things. Like, I've like the the like the 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 research or like the understanding of the actual technology was like moving at a pace that maybe like the, the adoption was in in, in the right circles. And I I will, I will agree with you on the point of like, it's a good point around like the, or at least like the ways different people trying it, like reflecting the different prices in the early days, like 2017, when I first like caught wind of it, it was a lot of smart people, Silicon Valley all hyped about it. Um, But it wasn't. So the adoption was higher because I guess they were more educated and like there was more of like um, information asymmetry a lot with that. Um, but then now over time, it's getting more and more adopted and that's changing, too.
0: Wow. Well, you know, I have, I have a sort of set of beliefs around how this you know, evolves, what triggers it and the timing. And yeah. so I think we're in one of these cycles. Um, I think, you know, I gave I did a little panel at Stanford a while ago uh, with one of my old professors and we talked about crypto. And he asked me, like, what are you thinking? And this was probably in 2018 or something. Yeah. And um, and I said, look, my simple rule for crypto is what everybody thinks it's a good idea to buy crypto. It's probably the right time not to be buying crypto. Uh, and whenever anybody thinks it's the stupidest, craziest idea to buy crypto, then that's the best time to buy crypto. Mm-hmm. And you know, I basically applied that over the last couple of years, and yeah, I think you know, so far it's been it's been you know, quite a quite a good strategy. Uh, you know, Silicon Valley venture capitalists always tell you like, go where all the smartest engineers are going. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and dude, for the last five or ten years, like a lot of the smartest people in yeah. Silicon Valley have been working on this stuff, and they've been so unlike anti establishment, if you will, like they have been completely unembraced by Sandhill. Um, so, you know, I think it's a funny example of them giving advice that they don't take themselves, but,
1: uh, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, no, I, I that, that's a great point. I mean, um, but I think I think you're now starting to see like Andreessen. I mean, all these, all these VC firms are now starting to develop their own crypto funds specifically and like get more involved in it. But totally. Plus they own like,
0: I think 10% of Coinbase or something insane like that. Yeah. You know, so Andreessen was one of the firms that was pretty good. Yeah, 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 I should say pretty good. It feels like a huge understatement given that Yeah, event. yeah. but um, yeah, there there are great firms that have focused on it. One of the ones I'm really excited about is a Paradigm, which is uh, one of the co-founders of Coinbase started a fund called Paradigm. Fred and um, I think it's going to be. I think I think he's a genius, and I think he's going to. You know, that's going to be one of the most important companies, funds uh, of the future. So yeah, there's a lot of really cool stuff in crypto. I'm a big ball
1: Yeah. yeah. And is is Paradigm a fund or a company or both?
0: It's a a fund, but not in the traditional sense, just because they have a particular ethos around how they do things. And um, I'm just extremely excited about that and follow what they do pretty closely. So I just think, you know, the future will be very interesting. I think crypto will be a huge part of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I definitely agree. And that's And I think it'll be cool applications. And I mean, the cool thing about it too, is it's getting getting more and more abstracted where I know companies now, they're like APIs, no code, where they can integrate, you know, blockchain technology and existing products. And I think that's going to like make the adoption better on like the enterprise and like developer side. And then like, I think the consumer side's coming around from all this like uh, fast money and, you know, like the volatility of of them and creators getting like pushing it. Um, You have kind of both sides kind of like catching up. Yeah, I think one of the most
0: interesting things going on right now in that space is obviously, quote unquote, China crackdown. There's been like, you know, 100 yeah. China crackdowns. I was looking yesterday, there's like articles from 2013 saying China's cracking down on Bitcoin. So it's like clearly, you know, even China can't crack down on Bitcoin. Like this yeah. is something that is outside of the realm of things that states can. Yeah, and wow. it's a, yeah. It's a no, second I, change.
1: Yeah, no, I heard a, I heard a good point, which is true. It's like the governments always want a piece of something that's powerful and and, and makes money. And I think it's unstoppable now. And they're, they're now not going to try to stop it, but they're going to try to get involved. I, I, think, I think,
0: yeah, that, that'd, that'd be really smart. But unfortunately, I don't think that that's likely, at least in any time soon. I think the next parabolic movement of crypto that will probably happen in like four or five years Yeah, uh, will be, you know, now it's like institutions and companies adopting. I think the next one will be countries adopting. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, but yeah, if I was the US government, I mean, they're literally putting so much money in the market. Like if they took a tiny fraction of that and they bought Bitcoin, Yeah, they would literally have control over what I think is gonna be the sort of monetary protocol for the future. Yeah. And, uh, but unfortunately, they're not particularly forward-minded uh, and I don't think, you know, that's like 100% worth it because if yeah, there's yeah. even like a 10% chance of that happening.
1: Oh, no, definitely. I, and, I will say, cause I've a I've, uh, brother actually used to work in like central bank digital currency. It's now, they now are starting to, to notice because it, it like, This is the really cool part about um, blockchain. I think people overlook is it it affects not just like products and uh, not just products and like, I guess the, like the consumer like enterprise economy or whatever you want to call it, but it also affects governments and it affects international relations. So one great example is um, the US dollar, the fact that the US dollar is like the world standard is like immensely powerful because we now have more flexibility with how we do our monetary policy. Um, it also gives us power over other countries and all that. And so China's actually been working a lot on a digital yuan, digital currency, going back like five years. And now they, it's, it's launch in a couple cities there. They've been building this one belt, one road initiative for a long time. And like basically like bargaining, hey, we'll build, you know, this infrastructure, but you need to accept our currency. So they're trying to jump to the next wave of like the digital dollar standard and that's extremely important and that's a national security honestly issue so i can see the government um <clears throat> governments are, i know the u.s government's starting to like have more more meetings on this because it, it is becoming more of a an economic power struggle
0: well, Finding that the u.s government is having more meetings on it doesn't inspire a particular amount of confidence you know, true you know, yeah but... yeah Yeah.
1: i'm yeah i'm, I'm, I'm but... not very i'm not very uh optimistic in our government either but at least though like i think it's like we're like three or four years late. So I hope that they catch up, or at least private companies can, you know, bolster that.
0: You too. The, the thing that always gives me some pause is like I had spent a little bit of time watching those uh Senate hearings with the you know Fang CEOs. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 then that that's where I was like, hmm, I wonder really how, how much they they truly do understand about and, uh, yeah. what, what's going on. But I, I don't know that I'm fascinated by macro personally. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of really smart people who have tons of interesting views. Obviously, Stanley Miller Paul Tudor Jones. Um, uh, th- there's another one that I'm, I, I think it's, I don't know if his first name is Jeremy, but I think his last name is Gunlock, Gunlock, or whatever, that I'd recommend uh, to like talk about what's going on right now. Cause we are in completely new territory. Like this yeah. is, we're in the, we're like at the bleeding edge of an experiment that has never been run before successfully. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and I think you're starting to see the disequilibrium caused yeah. by all the uh, inorganic distortions that have been put in place, especially over the last 18 months. Yeah, and I think fundamentally, nobody knows what's going to happen. Yeah, um, and I'm not sure that it'll be a nice side. You know, I'm Lebanese, and so I've observed like what happened in Lebanon over the last you know 24 months in terms of inflation. Yeah. And The one thing I can tell you for sure, you know, having been quite involved uh, and following it pretty closely, is that. Uh, Inflation, when it starts, happens way faster than anybody can even imagine. Hmm. And it always starts with people who are asset holders thinking they're getting richer and smarter. Yeah. Uh, and ends with everybody being fairly broke. So I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot to be cautious about right now uh, and worried about.
1: Yeah. But thank God for crypto. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm, no, that's a great point. I mean, like my, my friend Andrew has like, been very bullish on crypto for a while he thinks that it'll get to the point, And this is like where, once again, I, I love you know the kind of more macro impact of this as well. Like where it'll be at a certain point where um, governments will need to, basically we're kind of with like blockchain technology, you're kind of stripping away power from governments in the form of the economy in a way. And so now like now the governments will potentially need to compete with each other based on like better economics. And there'll be maybe some sort of economic, protocol or something that takes over that maybe different countries will unify behind, that'll be better for their people, less inflation. I mean, it's, 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 it's great. It's like the Federal Reserve, you know, is, is being stripped away. And now it's going to be digitized and um, allowed to be controlled or impacted by more people and probably more smarter people.
0: Well, I'm always biased towards decentralization in general. I think like whenever you have these massive concentrations of power in yeah. institutions that last like, you know, decades or centuries, then you end up being sort of corrupted in the, in their focus and in their initiative. So um I think, I think will I think it will accrue to that. It'll basically accrue value to the individual versus the state. Yeah. Uh, and it's possible that even nation states uh, are, you know, basically dated as a, as an mechanism for um, organizing people, right? Cause like, that's something that's very recent, this sort of national democracy. yeah. You know, these are all fairly new, you know, especially an unpegged currency, but, you know, yeah. until the seventies, I think the US is back to the, you could the go trade. show up with your dollars and get some bull. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you know, so we're, we're, like I said, in the very bleeding edge of an experiment and society is adapting very slowly to technology and technology is only accelerating. Yeah. So uh, I think we're gonna have a very interesting live study.
1: Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. Um, awesome. Well, Anthony, I, I uh, this has been great. I guess like it'd be awesome to maybe end with one, one cool idea or maybe like lesson or trend that you're seeing that you'd want to share, or, like talk about.
0: Yeah, I, I just say like you know, um, people are always talking about like oh what it and and who knows you know we're early in our I think history and there's a lot to be determined. Yeah. But uh, I, I just said the one thing that served me best on the path here and that I've observed to be the case across the board is, you know, nothing is more valuable in this pursuit than perseverance. Like, and perseverance is, I think, derivative of like, uh, how you're organizing yourself, how disciplined you are around yeah. exercise, meditation, sleep. Like these things are actually fundamental to winning this uh, over and sprinting, um, you know, this marathon basically. Yeah, it's indeterminate amount of time. I think a lot of people think like how smart you are, how well connected you are. But yeah, none of that stuff matters because you're gonna get punched in the face uh, many, many times. And so like the the real difference is whether you acquiesce. Like there are plenty of times where uh, it got really, really hard. Yeah, and, um, I, and I think that a key reason that we've been able to accomplish what we have, even though it's relatively small compared to what I hope we're gonna accomplish, yeah, is because yeah. we like have a very persistent culture and team.
1: And, and where did that 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 spirit of per- persistence come from for you? I think for me, it was, you know, like I said,
0: pre-product market fit me last, we did like a year and a half of just iterating yeah. a bunch of stuff that was failing. Uh, and then seeing that, you know, at one point, my whole strategy for the business was show up every day and do whatever you think is the smartest thing to do on that day.
1: Yeah. And literally, because I
0: didn't know where things were going and everything was like, you're like so deep in the water that you don't even know if you're going up, down, sideways. Yeah. Yeah. You know? uh, so. Uh, and, and, and seeing that pay off was the most important lesson yeah. for me in terms of understanding what it takes in terms of dedication to get anything done. Yeah. Uh, I'm so grateful that I saw yeah. it. A lot of, I have great friends who are, have gone on to build other companies, but in their first company, they spent seven years. Yeah. They never quite figured it out. Yeah. And it yeah. got popped out, you know, seven years later with, a, you know, basically an L and, yeah. um, that sucks. Right. So persistent can cut both ways. It's a dangerous thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's like the quintessential questions. Like when do you, and I think, I feel like pivot's the wrong word. Uh, I think there needs to be some iterate. It sounds kind of like too lame. I feel like it needs to be some other word, but like, yeah, it's just, it's constant experiments. It's always like uh, believing that you'll build something, you'll make it work. Um, and then like learning quickly. Cause I feel like, cause yeah, the dilemma is like, you know, spending too much time on something that's not working. Um, or maybe needing to push a little bit more or just like knowing, know, and knowing the difference Re- really, it's just knowing the difference. Um, and I a hundred percent agree with you. Cause if you could learn some the same lesson in less time, it's better.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, that's, you know, that's in my opinion, one thing I haven't found a good framework around. It's just, it's tough yeah. it's judgment and gut and, and you're just as likely to be right as you are to be wrong. If not yeah. you're more likely to be wrong than you are to be right. Yeah.
1: Anyways, thanks for reaching out,
0: man. I appreciate it. It It's great catching up with you. I hope this was uh, enjoyable and I'm looking forward to seeing what comes of it.
1: Yeah, no, of course.